Welcome to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. I am Dr. John, the guide for your heroic journey towards greater health, success, and most importantly, happiness. And now, on with the show. Hey, all you avid listeners out there, this is Dr. John. And if you enjoy what you're hearing on these joint podcasts with me and my fiance, Jory Rose, please know that we are offering a week-long retreat in Costa Rica in April of 2023 at one of the top resorts in the country where the body workers are next level and you will learn from myself and Jory how to be in better relationship to yourself, to your loved one, and to everyone else. This is going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Please feel free to check out the podcast notes for more links, details, and info. Thanks so much, and now on with the show. Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming aboard today. I greatly appreciate it. This is the latest episode of The Evolved Caveman, and I am really, really excited to have with me Rob Mack today. And this is an interesting position for me to be in because I don't normally operate in this manner. Normally, I talk to new interview people you know, for 20 minutes just to kind of map out a path and figure out if they're a good fit for the program. Rob, however, has been so enthusiastically endorsed by Jory, my fiance, that we're going to give this a shot. And I really am excited. I think this is going to go really, really well. So Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure and privilege. I've heard the most wonderful things about you and I've also listened to your podcast. Um, so, you know, I'm really familiar with what you're putting out. I appreciate you having me. No, thank you. So give us a little bit of your background as I'm unprepared and, and don't have your bio here. Totally, totally. So I um, basically am a positive psychology expert, uh, published author, executive coach, and a celebrity happiness coach, um, which is just a long way of saying I was unhappy for a very long time. And in some ways, I'm like the least likely person in the world to be a happiness coach just because I struggled for so long. But also probably, I think, um, for that reason, also, um, you know, best prepared to be a happiness coach, just because I know how hard it can be to find your peace and your happiness uh, and your joy again. Um, so yeah, I love talking to people about happiness and writing about happiness. That's my thing. Yeah, and and thank you so much for for sharing that. I and I'm a big fan of the MAP program. That's Masters of Applied Positive Psychology at UPenn. Uh, it was the first positive psychology program, I believe, in the country, if not the world. And then Claremont Graduate School came out with a, a PhD, I think, in positive psych a few years after right. that. But Marty Seligman's there, who's the father, the reputed father of positive psychology. And even Marty described himself as a curmudgeon, as an old yes. curmudgeon. And, Good memory. and I get it, right? Like I was kind of pessimistic, uh, depressive, until I got more positive psychology into me. And it really changes the way you see yourself in the world. Without question. I mean, I was like you, John, the most stressed, anxious, self-loathing, self-hating, unhappy kid you could possibly imagine. I tried to hide it well. Don't think I did a great job of that. Always thought I'd grow out of it. You know, you think I'll do well in sports and I'll do well in school. And hopefully, you know, I'll accomplish my dream of being a professional basketball player. That was my thing. And maybe I'll have so, some friends. Pardon me, so you tried to achieve your depression away or your anxiety I sure did. away That's or exactly your self-loathing it. away? That was, that was my strategy. It worked yeah. kind of for a minute. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you get these little blips. <laughs> But then pretty quickly, I've discovered two things. One is uh, it was endless and bottomless. And the second piece is, you know, the happiness that I would achieve through achievement didn't last for very long. And mm -hmm. almost the higher you go, the higher you're afraid of falling. 
Well, and, and that's one of the big tenets of Manbox culture is you're only as successful as your last achievement. So I know so many men that are still trying to achieve their way to happiness, and yet it only lasts, it's very fleeting. And then if you make a mistake, it tears you down. Absolutely. Who is it? <clears throat> Buddha said there's only two kinds of unhappiness in the world. It's like not getting what you want and then getting what you want because you're fear, <laughs> yeah. you, want, you know, and it's so true. You know, we've all been in that position. Yeah. It's like you get to that place you've been working so hard to get to, and then you're just afraid of losing it all or losing part of it. Uh, so yeah, you're absolutely right. The achievement, um, the, the sort of the happiness through achievement thing is not the best practice or policy for achieving happiness. But it is a well-worn strategy. And I, and both of you have, both of us have tried it and found it wanting. So I, I think, and I, again, I see so many men out there that get these huge milestones, you know, reach these tremendous goals, but they can't even stop to savor it. I would say for a few seconds, they're already turning onto the next one because there's so much anxiety driving them. You just nailed it. I mean, part of what drives the achievement is also what drives the unhappiness, you know, there's an insecurity there an instability there. And, um, you know, often an emptiness there that drives the achievement, but also drives your inability to enjoy the achievement when it arrives. Right. So you take this sort of future oriented mindset and continue to project happiness into the future. So go back for me and you, you started on it, but fill us in on your story because your story is fascinating. Yeah. So, um, you know, just, I was miserable, really miserable. And, uh, I don't think there was anything. Where did you grow up? Where were you? I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, small town, way outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, you know, pretty monolithic small town. It was a country town. I was probably just one of few, um, minority families there. And, um, you know, it was probably a great place to grow up, played a lot of sports. I love sports, you know, and, um, I just always felt like to your point that I would achieve this happiness thing through sports. And as I got older, um, even though life was going just fine, I mean, I was saluted to in my high school class and I had some few, a few friends, not many, uh, I just felt more and more dysphoric and I got depressed and I got seriously suicidal. And so I decided to do some research. Um, and I looked up ways to kill myself. I eventually one day went into the kitchen, got a kitchen knife, dug it into my wrist. And I just had the most by the way, that is not the best way to go. No, no, it wasn't. It was <laughs> I'm just saying, if you're researching ways to go. Yeah, well, I didn't have access to a lot of the other means and methods, to your point. Like, and a lot of them felt very okay. violent and dramatic. And I kind of was like, mm. but you're right. I mean, they're, 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 you know, that wasn't the least painful way <laughs> or yeah. quickest way. No question about it. And, you know, when I dug this knife in, you know, I think part of it too, I was concerned about the pain. Dug the knife in and I just without anything in my external circumstances and conditions changing. I mean, I had a pretty good life at that point. Um, I was healthy. You know, my family was healthy. I had a few friends. I had a great girlfriend. I had a consulting job at the time. I, without any of those things changing, I felt this inexplicable peace and uh, love and joy just wash over me. And I couldn't really understand that. Like, what's that about? You know? So at the time I just decided I was gonna postpone the suicide for like 15 minutes. It was, even that, that's laughable to me today, but then it felt like a really tall order. It worked then. But I, I think when you're in that much pain, it is, it's, you're almost on a second by second basis. Absolutely. And every second feels excruciating. I mean, mm-hmm. so in that 15 minutes, I started to do a little different research and I started looking up like, well, what really is depression? What really is unhappiness? What really is happiness? And uh, that 15 minutes led into several hours and now it's been in several decades. 
and uh, my life is significantly different than it was then. Well, I'm glad you didn't act on that impulse to use the knife. I am too. Um, because I, you know, one of the things that I talk to a lot of clients about is I really want to normalize suicidal thoughts because it's my belief that one of the guarantees in life is that it's going to kick us in the teeth at some point. And sometimes repeatedly, sometimes, you know, multi-layered, but I think it's almost a guarantee that life is going to be painful at times. And I think most of us at some point in our lives have had that thought of, fuck it. Like, I, I just, I don't want to, this is too painful. I can't take it anymore. Honestly, and I sometimes joke just uh, tongue in cheek a little that I only trust a person if they've had suicidal thoughts or at least have been severely or seriously depressed even for a short period of time in their life. Because otherwise you're just not paying attention, you know, it's like, or not feeling very deeply. Sure. Or not very self-aware. I don't know which, but I, you know, I, I really want to just encourage that. I, I think the thought itself is normal. Now there's a difference between thinking, having the thought and acting on the thought is kind of the distinction I make for a lot of my clients. And I've walked down a one-way pier with a lot of clients over the years in terms of talking about suicidality, talking about those thoughts and kind of normalizing and then saying, I, I don't get that spun about the thought of, I want to kill myself. Where I start to get a little bit concerned is when you say, I've got a plan. So for those that are listening that have ever had that thought, please don't think you're crazy. I think it's potentially arguably crazy not to have that thought ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's and to your point, it's not really ever a question of having the thought or not having a thought to your point. It's more about how you relate to the thought, whether you identify with the thought, whether you attach. Oh, to now it. you're going off mindfulness. Because like that same thought, because I still have, I don't have, I don't know if I'd call them suicidal thoughts, but I have thoughts about death probably just as consistently as I did then but I relate to them so differently now. And whereas before they would, it would depress me and make me more suicidal. Now, the way I relate to them, I feel inspired and uplifted to live a fuller, richer life as a result of them now. Speak to the difference for people that haven't made that distinction, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, when I was young and depressed and suicidal was like, um, nothing is ever going to work out for me. There was that. There was also like, even if things do work out for me, it's going to all be taken away one day soon because I'll lose everything and everybody to death. There was that. And I was like, oh man. That's so just, a fear I, of future death, not only yours, but others that you love. Absolutely. It was an ex okay. existential sort of crisis, anxiety, angst. After, you know, sort of like healing and sort of working through all that. Now I have thoughts like, oh, that's right. Everything and everybody that you work hard, so hard to love and get to love you and that you would try to achieve and accomplish and acquire all those things. It's all going to be taken away by death. That's a reason to celebrate, not worry. Like that means that no matter what happens, I'm good. At some point in time, I'll, you know, leave this body, leave this particular world, move on to the next stage or adventure. And um, it gives me more reason to enjoy the present moment, no matter where I am, what I'm doing, who I'm with, you know, there's, so I relate to it so differently now. It's like, before it was like, Oh no, we're all going to die. Ugh. Now it's like, oh no, we're all going to die. Yes. <laughs> the body is somewhat of a prison. The world is somewhat of a prison. And I love that. Not today, you know, but if it happens today, I'm, I'm you know, willing and ready to go. But my life is so much richer and more meaningful because I have those thoughts now. Yeah. Thank you. And a good explanation, because I think that one of the life goals or tasks that we are faced with is how do we relax into the idea of our own death? 
or the death of those we love, deaths of those we love. Um, because I, I it, you know, we're filled with paradox, right? And so I, I think that some of those paradoxes are things like the more relaxed or more comfortable you get with the idea of your death, the more fully you can embrace life. The more you realize that divorce is an option daily if you're married, then the more fully you can be present in your marriage. Oh, John, this is why I love you, brother. I mean, honestly, like <laughs> I do. I'm not kidding. Like it took me so long to truly appreciate how profound paradoxes are. Like, and er- the cl- the more something feels like a paradox or contradiction, the closer you are to a truth. Almost always, the yeah, greatest young, are, right? Yeah, exactly. The greatest truths are always paradoxical, and while they seem like contradictions, they're always complementary. So, to your point, it's like. One of my favorite quotes is from A Course in Miracles, infinite patience produces immediate results. It's like, wait, huh? <laughs> but that's precisely the idea. Sometimes you slow down and things move more quickly. Sometimes you move quickly and it takes forever to get something done. It's like a yeah. pot, you know, washed pot never boils. That kind of idea. But you're absolutely right about that. It's interesting how by resting and relaxing, you can accomplish and achieve so much more and so much more much quickly much more quickly. Yeah. So yeah. Um, huge. Well, and I love that idea of kind of emotional maturity being the realization that we are large enough to contain multitudes within us. We contain contradictions. We contain paradoxes. We contain multiple con- contradictory emotions about the same people or situations. For instance, you know, how do I feel about my mom? Well, I, I love her and I admire her and I have respect for her and I fear her and I, you know, feel sorry for her. I pity her at times. Like, she frustrates me. Like they're all that's wrapped up in there, and all that is true simultaneously. That's right, and, and that's why you'll never. Um, I've never. Maybe it's possible. I don't want to eliminate the possibility for anybody else, but I've never found lasting, meaningful, and abiding peace, love, or happiness in my emotions in my emotional experience of life. Like there are going to be ups and downs, and that world of duality is not a forever or even a very lasting source of peace, love, and happiness. It's only when I've become aware that these waves on the surface of the ocean are just one level of who I am, that there's a deeper, all-pervading, all-present level or layer of who I am that includes all of the emotions, thoughts, feelings, sensations, perceptions, but isn't bound by them or limited by them. You know, there's something that is aware of all of them that is not them, right? So you can be aware of a feeling or a thought and also recognize that you're not it. If you can be aware of it, if you can observe it, you're not it. And in so that- you're talking about like um, meta-awareness, metacognition, meta-emotion. So uh, how do you explain that to clients? Because that's, yeah. that's a tough concept, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, so, so it's a great point you make. And so there's two ways. One is I don't try too hard to explain, <laughs> you know, if it doesn't um, come easily, I don't try too hard and for good reason, because it is the, it is called the peace that passeth understanding for a reason. You know, it is called the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind for a reason, because it's in the spotless mind. It's in that awareness that transcends or passes any understanding that you have the experience of that peace, love, and joy. And so you're better off getting a taste of it yourself by savoring or enjoying or noticing those moments when you're not lost in discursive thought, when you're just sort of tapped in, tuned in, turned on to the present moment, and you're just enjoying whatever it is that you're enjoying. 
No, that now, see, Rob, this, now it sounds like you're talking about the last time I took mushrooms. Yeah, very much so. For sure. <laughs> That's why a lot of us. But there's a lot, lot there's a lot of similarities there, yes. truly. But I I, it also, it strikes me that that's the difference between, I don't know what the pre and post, like what that point was for you, but when you were kind of believing your suicidal thoughts or those depressive thoughts and you're immersed in them, you're fused with them. And then later on, you develop this skill of metacognition, meta-awareness so that you can pull back from your thought stream and go, oh yeah, there's that thought again of, I want to kill myself. It's too painful to take. Yeah. I've seen that before. I'm just going to let it go. Boom. I mean, and honestly, I didn't know at the time, it took me like 20 years to come to this understanding. But when I experienced that peace, love, and joy at the moment when I was going to take my life, when I, what I really experienced- That's paradoxical too. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That I was more alive at the moment when I was going to face my own death, right? Yep. Like, yes. And so, but it took me a while to appreciate that what I was calling a divine intervention, which I still stick to, it was- this divine no mind. It was my mind going quiet for a moment or a micro moment that let me feel all of this peace, love, and joy that was always ultimately there. Right. Well, and a really good point, because I think that one of the things that everyone I've talked to that's contemplated suicide, one of the things that they're trying to do is cessation of consciousness. They just want to get their mind to shut the fuck up (laughs) for a minute. Yeah. And, and I totally get that. And I think through practices like mindfulness, I, I don't know that you and I, well, I'll speak for myself. I don't know that I'm ever going to get my mind to shut up a hundred percent unless I'm you know meditating eight hours a day, 10 years. But um, I think that I can get it to slow down. And I think I can become more aware of the thoughts in there so that I can choose whether or not to engage in them, to look for evidence, to support them. One of the classic ones for me was I'm a fucking dumbass. Even after I had a PhD from Cal and had written a book. Which, <laughs> Isn't that ironic? It, yeah. it makes no sense. I, I mean, it's like standing at the side of the, the Grand Canyon and that little gremlin voice in your head goes, jump. Again, it makes no sense, but it's there. Fascinating. And, and, and to your point, and I'm sure you probably are very familiar with and talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Which is uh, like, yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's like competence often erodes confidence. So the more you know, the more you know how much you don't know. The more you know, the less you think you know, right? So again, a paradox. And to your point, you know, that was a challenge for me. Same kind of thoughts, you know, and um, they just often would grow with time and with education and, you know, with enlightenment and whatever you want to call it. That's also why, to your point, and you, you know, made a great, so many of them, but like in the beginning, I was completely lost in my thoughts. Then I realized sort of part of the way through that I actually could change my experience or at least my emotions by changing my thoughts. That was a, that's a huge realization to have that like, just because something is happening or something is true, doesn't mean that I have to focus on it until I'm depressed and miserable and suicidal. I can actually change my focus and focus on anything or anybody else and feel better. Even if it means I have to bury my head in the sand for a little while, fine. Better that than focusing on this thing that I cannot control and then feeling worse and worse as a result of it. And then at some point I graduated from that and said, oh, this is still a ton of work. Like even when I'm thinking really positively or constructively, I still have this anxiety inside. You know, I'm tired of fighting these thoughts. So then you come to a place where it's like, can I just enjoy more moments when I'm not thinking like an idiot, like a small child? (laughs) You know what I mean? You come to the and then you're like, oh. I mean, I like the thought that there's, you know, several me's within me or several 
age me's within my head, right? So there's the functional adult, there's something like a 15-year-old, and there's something like a five-year-old. And I find I'm often speaking back to the five-year-old in me like, dude, it's okay. Like, relax, calm down. I got this. You're safe. You're okay. You know, like, and so I'm, I'm being, I'm, I, I don't know, like, um, I'm trying to soothe that part of me that's really scared or really angry. Well, isn't that what most all practices ultimately come down to to some extent? I mean, really, it's like, and that's the one thing I think we're most challenged to do for ourselves in this life is we're not really taught to do any of this, you know, like self-soothing. Like, can you yeah. self-soothe? It's just an incredibly important skill and for everyone. And men are particularly challenged to do it, right? It's like, what? No, uh like, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> denial or whatever, you know, just use anger instead. But yeah, I mean, you you nailed it. So much of the work I've now come to realize has just been a, really all about self-soothing and quieting those unhappy, unhealthy, unsettled thoughts yeah. and feelings. I, you know, it's funny because I've left like four conversations in my mind since we've been talking. Like, there's, yeah. oh, I want to do that. I want to. Oh, wait, wait. And but let me ask you. There's a oh, there's a bunch of things I want to ask you. Um, one of the things is, do you have any particular questions that you use or that you teach others to use to manage all the bullshit going on in our minds? Mm. Yeah. Like, one that comes to mind is like you mentioned one, which was basically like, is this something under my control? Love that one. Yes. So exactly, what here is controllable or most controllable? Love that one. You know, one of my favorite coaching questions is, how's that working for you? You know, like I worked in the whole like addiction community for a while as a spiritual counselor. And, you know, one of the expressions you hear there a lot is like, your best thinking got you here. (laughs) So wherever you are in your life, your best thinking got you there. So at some point you have to realize that maybe thought, you know, particularly discursive thought isn't, the best path or route to anything or everything that you want. Maybe there's another path, right? Um, another question that I love asking is, you know, does that make you happy? You know, or do you enjoy that? You know, whatever it happens to be. It's like, does it truly make you happy? Like, you know, if you look at your life and you notice all the things that you have and all the things you've achieved, you know, you look around and say, well, most of these things I, I would pray for if I didn't have, you know, I would have a vision board for all of it. And then you also say, is any of this made me like permanently or lastingly or meaningfully happier? Like, can I really say that I'm that much happier as a result of all this stuff that I've achieved, accomplished, or acquired? It's like, they were all great experiences, but I would argue that most of us, if we look closely enough, will quickly discover that if they made us happy, we wouldn't be chasing everything and everybody in the way that we are now. So yeah, yeah I think questions are great. Another question I use sometimes just to quiet the mind a little is, you know, just close your eyes and ask yourself and then listen for what your next thought will be. That's been one of the great ones for me. Like when I was really struggling early on to understand this presence thing and like, how do I just get out of my head? I I noticed that that thought for some reason, when I would just sit, close my eyes and say, okay, what's my next thought going to be? And then wait for it, like listen for it. Nothing would often come. Hmm. And as I noticed that nothing came, I'd also notice a subtle little just, undercurrent of peace there. And I was like, that's so interesting. When I look for the thoughts, they're not there. It's only when I'm not looking that they seem to be there. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. um, so I, like some of the questions that I was thinking about were things like, 
is this a matter of life or death? Because I think a lot of times our emotions want to blow things out of proportion and, you know, chicken little, like the sky is falling. And so I, one of the ways I would check that is just, well, is this a matter of life or death? Because usually the answer is no, it's not. Okay. Well, let me work on bringing it back down. Um, Another one I like is like something like, will this matter in five years or 10 years? Or if it's a big deal, like, will this matter in the history of the universe? I, gosh, I love that, John. I'm those I am all in on. And one of the other ones that you're reminding me of now is to that point is like, I've always, you know, since I was little, I was a catastrophic thinker, lots of catastrophic thoughts, you know, to your point, like everything felt like life and death. And I discovered that if I would take the worst case scenario and play it all the way out and could make peace with it, boy, I re- was able to resolve so much of my fear and anxiety along the way. So, you know, so I've always had these fears like, what if I'm homeless? Like, what if, what if what happened if I'm homeless? Am I just, what would I do? It's like, well, I'll play that out. I'm on the streets. Maybe I don't have food for some days. I've been hungry before. It's not pleasant, but, but what I, well, I certainly do love reading. I probably read a ton of books, like whatever. You know what I mean? And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't have to worry about the job and the bills anymore. And you suddenly discover yeah. that the worst case scenario, if you play it all the way out, the worst thing that ultimately could ever happen is death. And yet it's not death itself that scares most of us. It's our thoughts and beliefs about death. We don't really know anything about death really based on experience that I can remember anyway. Well, and I, I like that question of, <clears throat> will this matter in the, in the span of the history of the universe? Because I think one of the reasons we get so uptight about our own death is we think we're so important, which at one level is great. Like, you know, I want people to have self-worth and self-confidence and I want them to know how important they are. And yet again, I guess it's a paradox. In the big picture of the universe, none of us really amount to a hill of beans. <laughs> that's right ants playing on a an anthill you know and and so I, I think to have sight of both those can be helpful it's one of the reasons i let go of this legacy thing i love people who are committed to and passionate about you know leaving a legacy i get that entirely and i'm all in support of that and also i'm you know crystal clear that even if i were remembered for a couple of years it won't be very long before i'm completely forgotten and or and or those people who remember me they're forgotten. And so I'm forgotten too. So yes, you're absolutely right about that. It's um, interesting because again, a paradox, it's like, you know, yes, your life matters and not nearly as much as you think it does and not in the ways that you think it does. So it's hard to kind of like hold space for all of that. Um, but that's really what life's about. It's holding space for all yeah. of it. So let me ask you the big question that every listener is on the edge of their seat waiting for. What is happiness? It's who and what you are. It's not what you do. It's not what you achieve, accomplish, or acquire. It's not a state of emotion. It's not even a state of mind, although that's helpful. It's a state of no mind. So when your mind is cool, quiet, calm, composed, you feel your true, la- your true nature, your true essence, which is peaceful aliveness, which is this alive peace. Okay. You're feeling it. You're experiencing it all the time, but you're not aware of it when you're lost in the mind or the brain. And this is why so many practices, somatic experience, somatic therapy, um, mindfulness-based practices often bring you back to your body so that you're experiencing, you focus on the experience of the body, not the explanations in the brain. Right? So my experience of happiness is something that exists not only within us, at all times, but actually as us 
at all times and in all places that we become increasingly aware of when we get the mind out of the way. And so unhappiness for me is not the opposite of happiness. Unhappiness is the obscuring of that infinite, eternal, thoughtless, wordless, faceless, formless essence that I call happiness that always exists not only within you, but as you. So how does that relate to like a, an awareness of the interconnectedness of all things? I, I guess we, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's one is of that the same. piece of it. Yes. Yeah, so another way of saying it to your point is it's the naked awareness of your own existence, just that. So before you know, or can be aware of anything or anybody else, before you're even aware of a thought or an emotion, a sensation or a perception, you are aware that you're aware, period. You're just aware that you're aware. Another way of saying that is you're aware that you don't have a life, but you are life, okay? That you are life, that you, that you are conscious and awareness. Those are big words. It just means that you're aware. That awareness, plain and simple, before it's dressed up with, thoughts and emotions and perceptions and activities and all this stuff is already the happiness and the peace and the love that we all seek through other people, places, and activities. It's already that. And what happens is when we achieve something, we think we've fulfilled a desire or a dream and therefore feel happy, but that's actually a total misinterpretation. What happens is that for a moment in your fulfilling of that wish or dream or desire, you've actually forgotten that wish or dream or desire. And for a moment, in time, you're not lost in this over-analytical mind that not only is extraordinarily good at solving problems, but is really fantastic at creating them, right? Mm -hmm. So you're just stepped outside of that for a moment. Now, of course, you're always outside of that, but you finally have the recognition or the awareness around it. So, I mean, I'm fascinated with your definition. I, I, I guess I would ask, so emotions have no part in this? They do. They have a part in the same way that um, that the clouds in the sky have a part in a sunny day. So, so when the day, so when we, we call it a sunny day, the sun is always shining as brightly and as brilliantly on every single day, forever and ever, right? And some days we call cloudy and some days we call bright and sunny. When your focus and attention is on thoughts, on the clouds, we call it a cloudy day. We feel clouded, our happiness is clouded. When our focus and attention is on the sunny skies and we're not focused or lost in discursive thought or in overlitical thinking, we call it a sunny day. The truth is that sun is always shining forever and ever. Happiness for me means something different to your point than most people. Most people think of happiness as an experience um, in the mind or the body. And I'm saying that what we ultimately are is something that includes the mind but isn't the mind it includes the body, but isn't the body. It's the awareness of the mind, the awareness of the body. And that awareness is dressed up in thoughts, emotions, and sensations, but it isn't only that, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess one simple way of saying it is that, um, that moment before you go to sleep at night, right before you fall asleep, you're so tired. You can barely move your body. So tired. You don't want to think there's a moment or a micro moment when you've forgotten all your dreams, all your fears, you've forgotten the past and the future, you've forgotten everybody and everything in the world, including yourself. That moment or micro moment is pure bliss. We all love that experience when our mind is perfectly quiet and silent. That pure feeling of bliss that requires nothing and nobody is always there. 
And we call it unhappiness when we don't experience it or feel it emotionally. And we call it happiness when we do. But that's a bit of a misunderstanding. Well, it makes me think from your your explanation that it, it, like my mind goes to Zen Buddhism, right? Which I think is largely concerned with how do you get that mind to stop the constant monkey chatter? And, you know, with, they would ask questions that were, I guess, paradoxical, but like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And, and so I think it's, it, those questions are meant to kink your rational mind to stop the hose of thoughts from coming so that you can get beyond it. Beautifully said. I mean, with that voice, you could say anything, <laughs> but that was <laughs> profound, profound and eloquent as always. I mean, that's precisely it. And the beautiful thing is this too, and I want to make sure that I'm clear because I've often misunderstood um, this before, which is like for, in the very beginning, I was, in, I was really persistent about trying to stop the mind like forever. Of course, that's not, not only is that not really possible unless you do some major damage, it's also not necessary and or fruitful. We want the mind. The mind is an incredibly effective and powerful tool. We just want to use it in the surface, in the service of mental health and peace and love and joy, and not in the service of anxiety and mental illness, right? That's the idea. So, so instead of needing or wanting, to your point, to stop the mind, it's great to enjoy moments like that. Like if you and I wanted right now, we could just sit here and not think about anything. You know, I've done that. I do that plenty of times during the day for the joy of it alone. There's an often easier path that doesn't invite or incite as much resistance, which is just noticing the peaceful aliveness in your body. Just even now, there's, a, there's an energy in there, right? I call it life. It is life. You can call it God. You can call it spirit. But there's a life energy, a peaceful aliveness that's already in your hands and your feet. Just feeling into that and practicing the presence of that, communing with that for joy's sake alone. As soon as you do that, your mind already is quieter. And if you keep that up and you practice that for its own sake, as often as you can throughout the day, no matter what else you're doing, it becomes automatic. And then you're practicing the presence of God, as they'd say in Christian, mis- Christian mysticism, they call it self-inquiry in non-duality teachings, um, but it's the same practice. Um, yeah. See, and, and I thought where you were going to go with that answer, the whole answer to happiness was PERMA. I know. No. I Listen, I love positive psychology. I do. And, and positive but you went, you went way off the rails on that one. Like I didn't expect that at all. Yeah. And, and so, so for those that don't know, let's go over PERMA just briefly. And I forget what the P is for. I'm thinking positive emotions, but it is, is. it is is in the beginning. We called it pleasure, but it's positive emotion. That's right. Right. So positive emotion E is engagement, right? Engagement. So that's getting in the zone. That's right. And that's, that's our relationships. That's right. Ours relationships. M is meaning and A is achievement. Okay. Or right. action or... Or action. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And the so idea... Because I, I do think that part of happiness is the... There's an emotional component to it, those positive emotions. I just think we have a misunderstanding that I think a lot of us want happiness to be that we feel positive emotions 100% of the time. And, and I think a big part of this, and there was a book by Todd Cashton, The Upside of Our, Our Dark Side, and that talked about that, no, we need the negative emotions. I mean, even negative, positive is a misnomer, but we need all the emotions because they're all messengers and it's a basic approach avoidance system. And so if the more we can turn towards them, get the message, 
and accept them for what they are rather than struggle against them and think, oh, shit, I shouldn't feel this way or I'm a man, I'm not supposed to feel depressed or whatever it is. I, I think that's part of it. I mean, I think it was Philippe Golden at uh, Stanford that said that emotional management is in itself happiness. That's right. Beautiful. I, I, I love that. And um, that's perfectly valid. And I would say that my experience includes that and um, continues on from there. So, 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 so yes. So, so my, so I would, I would have described and defined happiness in precisely that way. When I wrote my first book, happiness from the inside out, I would have said it's, and I probably did say happiness is telling truthful, better feeling stories about everything and everybody as often as humanly possible. That's true. So that you can feel positive emotion. No question about it, right? And I discovered that even in my most positive emotions, I'd still feel an undercurrent of anxiety or concern or mm. worry. And sometimes that concern and worry and anxiety was just, can I maintain this positive emotion, right? And then there's often, sometimes a denial of the negative. Yeah. What, did, so, what did Brene Brown had a term for that? Anticipatory uh, dread or? Yes. There was something that would get, for her, it would get in the way of her happiness a lot. She'd be like, she's happy. And then she's like, oh shit, it's going to end. Exactly. That's why I'm convinced that unhappiness, again, is, it's not a state of emotion because, and when you, and if you, it's fine that that's a step on the path to the kind of true happiness that I'm talking about, but you don't want to stop that. You want to, don't want to build your house on that bridge, so to speak. Positive emotion is certainly much more enjoyable and pleasant than negative emotion. Yet negative emotion is extraordinarily helpful and necessary in our lives. Happiness, however, ultimately the kind that I'm talking about, the only kind I think truly exists, is something that goes beyond all of that and yet includes all of that. And it's, it's something that is always there underneath the surface, above, below, beyond, between every thought, every emotion, every perception, every activity, right? And that's why you can sometimes feel happiness in the worst of circumstances or unhappiness in the best of circumstances, even, yeah. and or you can feel those same happiness or unhappiness despite the worst of thoughts or the best of thoughts. Yeah. Are you familiar with Jared Clifton that you kind of- I know of. Okay. Um, and his work on primal world beliefs? Hmm. Not as familiar as you are. Okay. Well, I, I mean, it, it sounds like there's an element of that in this definition because it, it feels like at some level, part of what you're saying is that it's, it's a belief that people are generally good, that the world is generally safe, and that what we're trying to do is spread love. Absolutely agree with that. Absolutely. And, and I would say, yes, that's, I, I love all of that. Um, and I, Albert Einstein said, the most important question you can ever ask yourself is whether you believe you live in a friendly universe or not, right? Yep, I mean, yep. there's a lot of happiness that comes from just answering that question in an affirmative way. Um, it's very difficult to be you know, happy or at peace if you believe that everybody or everything is out against you. All that being said, I would say that at the deepest core of my belief system, my experience of life, is that every case of unhappiness is a case of mistaken identity. It's a, it's a case of mistaken identity. As, as long as I thought that I was just a physical body, I, I mean, I was, it was, I was in a mess. And then as long as I yeah. thought that I was just an emotional body, I was just always a mess. It wasn't until I came to a place where I was like, oh wait, 
Like I can ride around in my car, but I'm not my car. Like you can have a body, but it doesn't mean you have to be, you can have emotions, but it doesn't mean you are your emotions. There's just a. Well, and I think the fundamental piece of that is if I over-identify with my body or with my mind or with whatever it is, I am fundamentally cut off from other people. Absolutely. And, and disconnected. And, and I think that, you know, that's the R and perma, the relationships, which really pissed me off at first. I was like, oh shit, now I gotta go and be nice to people, mother. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> I gotta sure. talk to people. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's true. Like, and I, I've talked to a lot of clients about, you know, just tap into your social awareness, into your social intelligence, and just try to connect with people in line at Safeway or Starbucks or wherever you are, just for that two to three minute conversation to see if you can connect and see if you can bring a smile to their face. Because if that happens, they get a little shot of positive emotion and you do too. And you both walk away winners. Oh, John, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, you know, Chris Peterson, Matt program. Other people matter. Yeah. Other people matter. Like, um, and Absolutely right about that. And the beautiful thing about giving love or connecting with people is that you experience the benefits of that love first and foremost, and even regardless of whether they do. Like people will say, Rob, you know, you um, seem to be so kind and generous and kept. I'm like, I'm selfish, man. I'm super selfish. I'm probably the most selfish person on the planet because I do it for me. Like I don't do, I used to do it because I was like hoping to get somebody to respond to me or like me or even say, thank you. I'm like, I can't, I don't have time or interest in that anymore. I just do it because I love the feeling of like connecting with someone yeah. and feeling that love for its own sake. Cause I'd like to feel good. Yeah. Well, and oh, man, there's so many things that come to mind. Um, but yeah, one of the things that comes to mind is this idea. So meaning, right. So let's move down the, the list a little bit because this one fascinates the hell out of me because you can have a meaningful life and not have any positive emotion or very little positive emotion. For instance, they did a study a while back looking at life satisfaction of parents. And, you know, when you start off in your twenties, super high life satisfaction. And then as you go down in the thirties, it drops forties, it's, tanks and the fifties, it's kind of starts to come back up again. And it doesn't really get back up until like the sixties. And the idea there initially was <laughs> kids destroy your life satisfaction yeah. and potentially your happiness, which at one level, totally true. On another level, they forgot about how meaningful it is to most of us to be a parent. That's right. It's, it's fascinating. And I love sharing. I love that you shared that study. I love sharing that study when I talk to parents or aspiring parents and just say, Hey, that first kid, you experience a dip in your happiness. That second kid, you experience a statistically significant dip in your happiness that doesn't return to its baseline level until those kids leave the house. So today it could be 18, might be 45 years of age, who knows? But to your point, most parents would say, I wouldn't trade my kids for the world. There's so much meaning in that, but also lots of stress in that, lots of responsibilities in that, very expensive. So it's not always a positive um, emotional experience, it's often a negative one, they might even say, or a stressful yeah. one, an anxiety-provoking one, but it's deeply and truly meaningful. So well, and I also like that idea of we only stress about those things that we care about. And, and I think that's a good reframe when I'm getting too stressed. I'm like, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> tells me that I care about it. There's another study I wanted to share with you because you mentioned anxiety a few times in the background of that undercurrent. There's a I think one of the most profound studies that I've ever come across, and I couldn't tell you who did it, but what they did is they, and I love this phrasing, they had a group of normals 
you know, people without anxiety. I don't know who the hell they were. And then a group of us with anxiety, with high anxiety. And then they took pre-measurements. So they looked at skin conductance, blood pressure, uh, cortisol and saliva, heart rate, things like that. And then they had everyone one by one go up to a podium where they were handed a piece of paper and they were told to do a five minute impromptu speech. And the audience consisted of two members, both of who were trained to be terrible audience members. So one guy would just sit there stone-faced and give no response. The other person would only give negative feedback, like shake their head, furrow their brow, put their hand on their brow, you know, scribble on the paper. And this stresses everybody out. It's a guaranteed stressor. And then they took post measurements. So which would you think intuitively, which group would have a higher spike in their physiological readings? Of course, the ones that were, you know, in that negative feedback. Yeah. The anxious people, right? Yeah. The readings were the same yep. for both groups. So everyone's, everyone started sweating. Everyone had an increase in cortisol. Everyone's pulse rate went up. And, and the conclusion from this is there's no difference in what's going on in our bodies. The difference is in our interpretation of those physiological symptoms. And that is a huge aha. Love. Absolutely. I think I remember reading that study in the power of bad too, which is, which is a great book. Um, you know, it's a lot about the negativity bias and it's interesting. Yeah. And I love the research that's been um, emphasizing all of that uh, more and more that, you know, it's not, um, you know, it's not that stress in and of itself is a bad thing. It's the way in which you think about and you know, sort of address or approach or relate to stress. You know, if you see it as um, something that can help to fuel your performance or X, Y, and Z, it's amazing how incredibly helpful it can be. And you know, who, kids are great for this. Kids are great examples of this. I mean, I did a morning show for like three years and we'd have kids on little TV stars and we'd have them on and talk to them. And I remember asking almost all of them, are you nervous when you get on stage? And so many of them, particularly ones who had experienced a lot of success. They're like, what are you nervous? I'm excited. I'm excited. And you think, oh my goodness, isn't that fascinating? And the kids are so accurate too, because, you know, the nerve, we, and I had a great social psychologist professor in undergrad, and he would always remind us the situation matters more than you think it does, but also the story you tell yourself. And he always say that, you know, like arousal is neutral. And whether you call it stress and anxiety or you call it excitement, there's a lot to do with you and also the ways in which you read into the environmental cues, but you have a lot more control over that than you think you do. John, I'd love you sharing the study. Like, yes. Yeah. Remember. Yeah. So that, that comes to mind. And then the five layer meat sack keeps coming to mind because you keep talking about that, how you're not the meat sack uh, that you were encased in. And so let me ask you this, because I I think I'm aware of time, but I definitely want to ask you, so what were some of the more powerful or profound or impactful positive psych exercises that you personally have done? Oof. Um, the three blessings exercise is fantastic. You know, uh, I, explain that if you would. Yeah. So just at the know. end of your day, uh, you just think back and remember three blessings of the day, you know, and they're really, it's just a gratitude exercise mostly. Um, so that was a really powerful one for me, you know, just bullet them out. Um, if you can, you want to do a little savoring around that, which is mean kind of like relive the experience a little, just sit in it for a little while. Uh, the gratitude letter was extraordinarily powerful. I thought, Oh, did you actually do that? Yeah. 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 Did who that did one. you, who did you give it to? Who did you write uh, it to? My mom, my mom. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, uh, I just love, I mean, I'm kind of like, I love expressing gratitude anyway, because again, it feels good to me, 
but it's, it's done it several times during this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or appreciation. I can't, help, I can't help it with you, John. It's just, you know, it's too easy. It really is. Well, thank you. Yeah. So I'd say those those two. Um, the best self exercise I thought was great too. Did you have any favorites? Sorry, best possible self. Is that what you said? Yeah, yes. Best possible yeah. self. Nice. So let me clarify that one. Is that where you go five years into the future, assume everything's gone as well as it possibly could? Where would you be? What would you be doing? Who would you be with? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if I was calling that by the right title. Yeah, that's um, and I, I I remember one part that either I emphasized or was emphasized to us, I think, was like what you how you'd be showing up in the world if you were your best possible self. And so mm. it was really um, a little like cognitive behavioral flavor to it. Um, so instead of getting too focused on like the vision board kind of experience where everything's just perfect, it was like, how am I going to show up in the world and relate to people and relate to myself in such a way that I feel like I'm bringing forth my signature strengths or gifts um, in a way that's of service to me in the world. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's all, all good stuff. And I've used all of them myself. And it's funny because I'll go back to certain ones. You know, I, I kind of rotate through them, I think. Um, but some of the ones that, that I've cherished, um, loving kindness meditation has been a big deal. And, and it's interesting because I've in a way carved it up and used it in little piece, like piecemeal all over my life. So for instance, um, I went through a contentious divorce about 10 years ago. And I remember my ex-wife is on the stand lying to the judge and I'm not supposed to get angry. And I know this is not true and I can't show anything. So how do you stay calm? And this was a, a pattern, but how do you stay calm in that situation? And I was like, so I would just sit there and I would wish loving kindness thoughts on her. And I would think, may you be happy? May you be healthy. May you live life with ease and well-being. And then I'd kind of throw in a dig, you know, like, yeah. may, you learn, may, may you learn to be honest. Now, I don't know if that does anything for her, but it sure as hell helps me bring down my heart rate, bring down the cortisol, bring down the blood pressure. Um, and I've used that in hundreds of different situations. Oh, um, so much. And it's it's so incredibly effective. I think I don't know if all these fit into positive psych, but mindfulness to me is the foundational skill upon which everything else is built because that builds the metacognition. It builds the awareness of the thought stream so that you can step out of the stream and observe it, which is until we do that, we're kind of screwed, honestly. Well, you just nailed it. Without awareness, there's nothing. You can't be aware of anything if you don't start with awareness itself or mindfulness. Yeah. I completely agree with you. We might call it by different names sometimes, but it's that fundamental and foundational element. The other thing to your point, and I love, I'm so inspired by what you did in the courtroom there, John, like that, we all know how difficult that can be in everyday life, even if somebody's telling you the truth, <laughs> right? Yeah. So forget about how somebody's lying. But the other benefit, which I love, that loving kindness meditation is that in addition to it, of course, improving your subjective well-being in the moment, we know that emotion is the most contagious element on the planet. So emotional contagion alone, which touches that lawyer, it touches the other lawyer, it touches the jurors, it touches you know, whatever it touches the wife, hopefully. Um, but it's interesting. And that's something I don't want to ever forget that, um, there is real truth and real value in being the change that you want to see in the world. Well, and, and my guess is you're a highly empathetic individual. Is that, uh, yeah, I, I, I didn't know for the longest time that it was like an empath. So yeah, yeah. Pretty I, I mean, I would, I would guess from just from knowing you for this little amount of time. Um, but 
you know, I, I think that it's important to have tools to protect yourself from your own empathy. Like empathy is a great thing and we'd be screwed without it. And yet I meet so many men that are at a nine or a 10 on a 10 point scale of empathy. And it's like, oh yeah, I, let me teach you how to turn that down a little bit to maybe a seven. Because otherwise you're just walking through the world, picking up all those negative emotions due to emotional contagion. I just love you saying that. And gosh, I mean, I've got these, um, I get these soul shivers when I connect, <laughs> you know what I mean? I had them all this whole time with you. And um, it's just, I mean, my whole body's got these soul shivers. And, and I agree with you entirely. That was me. I was just like this really sensitive instrument that pick up on everything and how I, you know, ended up being a coach where all you do is talk to people all day long who are probably at their worst state or the lowest mood, you know? And so I had to, to your point, and I'm still continuing to work on that. So probably a lifelong process, but it's extraordinarily important. Like this is why so many of us experience quote unquote compassion fatigue and and Mm -hmm. we burn out. And, you know, I realized that it's a real challenge. It's also a powerful instrument but you have to be in control of it. It's like a Ferrari, but you got to know how to drive it, you know, because otherwise yeah. you're going to create real problems in your life and other people's lives. So yeah, that's just critical. Like you have to know how to dial it back and or complement it with self-compassion, with self-care, self-soothing. You know, you got to really direct a lot of that attention and affection and focus back on yourself. Yeah. And I was going to say Kristen Ness work on self-compassion has been huge. And she was a classmate of mine at Cal. So that's pretty oh, Wow. Um, but I think forgiveness, a la Fred Luskin, has been a big deal in terms of letting go of old, stale anger. Um, and I think deep breathing is a big one too. And granted, that's a part of mindfulness or you know most meditation forms. But just as the easiest, quickest way to uh, activate the vagus nerve and by extension, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxation response, it's huge. So just exhaling out longer than you inhale. Loving that so much. Um... You know, I wish I would have met you earlier in my life. <laughs> I mean, it's perfect. The time is always perfect. Um, but boy, I mean, this is why um, conversations like this are so critical because that, what you just expressed, what you just shared, just diaphragmatic breathing alone, just that totally shifted my experience of life because I was like, okay, I don't know a whole lot. And obviously I'm not doing a whole lot well because I'm still miserable and unhappy or whatever. And I came to a place where I was like, okay, the one thing I can do is, I can breathe from the stomach and I can exhale longer than I inhale as often as I can remember throughout the day. And I'll put up reminders everywhere. If I just do this one thing and I realize just doing that one thing led me to all the other things. Yeah. Right. Your mind. Now, is- I have a question for you, just a pragmatic question and kind of a silly question. Does it make you feel moronic to put up post-it notes to breathe? No. It doesn't. Here's why. I never thought of myself as very bright. So I always felt I was a very, you know, I was saluted to in my high school class. I was always like, the only reason I am is because I'm scared to death of my dad. He was a disciplinarian. He stayed on top of me. I love him for that. So I've always, you know, I was my whole life, I was convinced I'm probably the stupidest kid around. And I just am going to work really hard to make sure I don't get in trouble. And that's why I'm able to achieve X, Y, or Z or these grades or whatever. So putting up notes like that for me was like, no, this is about the level I need. Just one word, breathe. I can, I can yeah. you know, work that. But I will say that when I wrote a book about any of that stuff, I was concerned. I was like, people are going to think I'm a total idiot, you know? But I know, but it's funny because I've asked other people in the profession, you know, well, what do you think about like post-its for whatever you need? Right. Cause I think we need a lot of these reminders a lot of the time. 
especially when we're in any sort of negative emotional state, because that's when we're most likely to need it and we're most likely to forget. And I was asking, I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a psychologist who was in Chicago, now he's in Austin. Um, and he was saying, oh, no, 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 like my girlfriend makes fun of me because I've got thousands of post-it notes up around my apartment. Well, if you think about it, the rest of the world and most everybody else in it is not focused on most of this stuff. And so, and to quite the contrary, most of the world and most of the marketing and advertising is actually doing the exact opposite job on you all day, every day. So you have to counter that in some positive, constructive way. For me, it's post-it notes. It also, at some point in time, was just listening. Like I was, um, I was a big Abraham Hicks fan. Still, still love Abraham Hicks. You know. Yeah, I, I got. Yeah, I got some of that. Right, and I used to be a member of their CD program. So that tell you how old I am. So these, and I would listen. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would listen to these CDs on repeat, nonstop, day and night. I would let it play in my sleep because I was like, I need help. Like left to my own devices. I'm going off the deep end. You know, I'm suicidal. Yeah. I have problems. So to your point, it was, I don't want to call it necessarily reprogramming it, but it was certainly deprogramming, you know, a lot of the messages um, that we've picked up from um, well-intentioned people in society. Well, and you, you mentioned one of the big reasons why that negativity bias, let, I mean, don't like cut out society and, you know, Madison Avenue and all the negative people around us, but our own mind has a bias towards over-focusing on negative thoughts, negative emotions, negative self-definitions, like I'm an asshole. So right. we have to learn how to counter that. So, and then we've got external influences as well. You, you just nailed it. And then that negativity bias is compounded by dozens of other biases, like confirmation bias, which yep. means that you know your attention and perception is very selective. So you, you bought a you know yellow punch buggy, and now you see them everywhere. Well, yeah, You find you what think- you look for. Yeah, find what you look for. So you're right. Um, and I love that point. It's an important one to remember so that you, we don't get into this blame game with ourselves because the brain, again, is not really designed or wired exclusively or mostly to make you happy. It's designed mostly and exclusively to keep you alive. And then, of course, right. the chance of being happy if you stay alive in this body is a lot better. But it's good to remember that. And I love you pointing that out. Well, and, and I think that, you know, one of the other tools that was helpful for me in turning me from a curmudgeon to less of a curmudgeon is um, the realistic optimism work by Seligman. And just yeah. learning how to, you know, reinterpret or almost correctly interpret, you know, a positive outcome and a negative outcome. And that took a little bit of retraining, reprogramming, but it totally. was super beneficial. I major turning point in my life too. Like that's a total game changer. I love calling that out. The way I would describe it to myself was like, I was obsessed with focusing on things that felt bad because they felt like they needed my attention. If it felt bad, it must need my attention. Also, I was obsessed with focusing on things that to a large extent I couldn't control. And so because something was true, for instance, I'd focus on it no matter how badly it felt or no matter how uncontrollable Mm -hmm. it was. And then I got to a place where my life, and I'm like, you know, Rob, not, you're just getting older every day, you know, and this doesn't seem to be working out so well for you, neither in terms of yeah. happiness, nor success, nor relationships. So I was like, instead of vetting thoughts and conversations with myself and others based only on whether or not it's true, I'll also vet those thoughts and conversations with myself and others also based on whether or not they're helpful or constructive or supportive in me achieving what I want to achieve or feeling what I want to feel. 
Yep. Right. So it's like, oh, wait, it's got to be true and helpful in order for me to continue to entertain it. That's the healthy, yep. happy, successful way to live your life. Not just focusing on something because it's true and or because it feels bad. And you think somehow by focusing on the bad stuff, you'll get more good stuff. Yeah. Perfectly stated. Um, because I, I'm always talking to my clients about, you know, pick the interpretation that serves you best. Or, you know, to what extent does this thought support you? Does it serve you? Is it helping you? It's a critical, it's critical. That's why this whole, would you rather be right or happy? So important, but you can be both. You just have to look at it from the right angle. Well, and, and so, you know, we talked, we touched on self-awareness a little bit earlier, and you'll love this if you don't know it already. So Tasha Yurik has done some preliminary research on self-awareness and found that 95% of us will happily self-report that we are highly self-aware. And in her research, it shows that there's only about 10 to 15% of us that are actually self-aware. And that's the whole problem, right? We're, we're living in this delusion that we know ourselves well, and we don't. I mean, I can't tell you how many angry people I've talked to that are like, I don't get angry. I wasn't raising my voice. And it becomes a mess. And, and you're right. And what's that expression? Um, what you can't digest, you project, essentially, mm -hmm. right? You vomit back up on other people. And it's, and it's so, and it's tough because, and particularly even for those very self-aware people, you can get sucked into that whole experience where suddenly to your point, someone's telling you, I'm not upset. You're, they're raising their voice. And you're very aware. Like my voice is They're yelling at you. I'm yeah, yeah, exactly. They're yelling at you. <laughs> before long, you get sucked down. Like I remember reading a study about, they took like, I forget who the authors were um, and, this, and, and the scientists, but they took like, I think both very sane and normal people and or psychologists or psychiatrists. And Those are two voice. separate groups. Yeah, two separate groups. But they, they, they I think they, right? <laughs> I don't yeah, know if you got that. Very, <laughs> separate, yeah. very separate, yes. Yes, for, there's no question about it. Psychologists are sometimes the least sane of us all. Yeah. Um, and they would they put them in a psych ward and they essentially, um, yes, they told that everybody in the psych ward, hey, these are the new patients that are here and uh, you know, just treat them like everyone else, whatever, blah, blah. And before long, not only did the patients there start seeing these very normal people as insane, but the people themselves started doubting their own sanity, Yeah. right? So it's the, <laughs> the peer... Well, and that's the danger of living with a, someone with a personality disorder. You know, like a narcissist that gaslights or distorts reality, after a while, you're like, wait, I, am I remembering that right? Like, because you'll be like, well, you said yesterday that you would pick up the, you know, our son from school. I never said that. Wait, what? And, and again, it's a gradual accumulation. And it also makes me think of Philip Zimbardo's uh, Stanford prison experiment. One of my favorite studies. Uh, and again, it's, it's the power of the situation to influence almost everything. I mean, it's our behaviors, our thoughts, our emotions, our self, our self, uh, image. Yes. Yes. And, and, and that's why, again, it's important to spend time alone practicing any of these practices, right? Like, oh, but Rob, I'm scared when I'm alone. I get really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I'm too busy. Yeah. Yeah. It won't work for me. Yeah. Even more reason to do it. I mean, it's like, <laughs> and I get it. You know, it's funny that you say that because I'm sure I, I'm sure I was the poster boy for saying that too. Right. Like, and you're right. Like, um, folks consistently say, and I said, I'm as guilty as anyone, um, consistently have said, I can't meditate. I'm not good at it. It's not, what do you, you weren't good at walking the first day you tried walking or speaking English the first day you speak, you know, tried to speak English or 
everything is difficult until it's easy. You know, it's yeah. only by lifting weights that you get stronger. It's only by falling down and getting up that you gather the strength to stay up. Well, and I've never seen a one-year-old go, you know, like they're practicing walking, they fall down, they fall down 10 times and then they go, ah, fuck it. Like I'm just, <laughs> it's too yeah, hard. Good. I'm good. So true, John. Uh-huh. So true. I just push me around in the wheelchair. They got a little one for me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's, see, that's that, um, that's the you know beautiful mind, but that's the mind, right? It gets in there, particularly, you know, your child didn't have no abstract thought really about all those things, you know, it's just, yeah. just like you get down, you get up. Well, it makes me think, you know, we were talking about self-awareness as a precursor to a lot of this. I think the other precursor is to believe that change is possible. You know, with perseverance and effort, one of the things I make clients do now is listen to an audio. I did a talk years ago about like kind of mindset, you know, fixed and growth. And then I go into four or five other areas where it's shown that mindset is extremely powerful. And I say, just listen to this. And I need you to make the choice to believe that you can change. Because I've had too many clients that let's say they're depressed and I can't tell you how much time and energy I've spent trying to get them to do things and they deflect everything. They're so well guarded. They're like, no, it won't work for me. No, I tried it. No. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well shit, you're right. Absolutely. I mean, um, that's critical, John, like, you know, and I, and I can appreciate you saying that so much. It's so easy and so common and tempting to argue for your limitations. Um, you know, and uh, it makes total sense. I mean, sure, there's something I won't call happiness, but there's something familiar, you know, about staying in your comfort zone and accepting the limitations that you've or other people have imposed upon you. But if there's one thing that my life and your life and science supports, it's that we not only can change, but we will change. And even when you often don't want to change, you still find yourself changing. Yeah. I mean, what's post-traumatic growth? Post-traumatic growth to a large extent is that. It's like the people who are least resilient often experience the most post-traumatic growth. And so, yes, change, that's critical, John. I love that point you're making because if you don't believe you can change, of course you're not going to put in the effort to change, and then you won't. Well, And I love that you brought in post-traumatic growth because that's such a a game changer too. I mean, prior to that idea, I think it was Tadeshi that brought it in, but it's... Oh, well, I went through something traumatic. Well, now I've got this great chance that I'm going to be flawed and damaged from it. Intrusive thoughts, hypervigilance, you know, all that, that, all that stuff. And it's like, wait a second. No, not necessarily. And, and, you know, some of that came out of, you know, it was like 650 Vietnam prisoners of war that were like in isolation in this prison camp for six to eight years and came out psychologically unscathed which is mind-blowing. Yeah, it it is. It's mind-blowing. And what's also fascinating is that, um, to your point, like the post-traumatic growth often happens instead of PTSD or happens coincidentally, like along with or after a PTSD experience. So it doesn't preclude. So, you know, PTSD doesn't preclude the possibility of experiencing post-traumatic growth. So yes, John, I have to love it. Sorry, I'm looking around on my wall. I used to have a, oh, there it is, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. I got it on the wall. Six areas that result from post-traumatic growth. And and here, let me just read this. This is awesome. The essential paradox that emerges is, quote, my struggle has produced something of value. I am more vulnerable and simultaneously stronger and more resilient. Love. And that's, you know, absolutely. And and there's two things that um, 
help to facilitate that P PTG, as you know. And one is being uh, open, right? You got to be open. Still got to be open. And the other is um, being, you know, a little bit sociable or uh, you just seek. Oh, you don't have to seek a ton, but yeah. you want to seek, right? So I remember those two factors. And there was something else I was going to mention. But oh, the other point is two point, which post traumatic growth is much more common than PTSD, right? It's much more yeah. common. It doesn't get as much airtime, obviously, for reasons that make sense, um, well, for some reasons that don't. But. And I think one of the big questions to ask yourself when you go through something even mildly traumatic is what am I supposed to learn from this? Because I think when you find the purpose or the meaning or the silver lining, that goes a long way to helping. One of my, you know, one of my favorite memes, <laughs> I'm not a big, huge meme person, but one of my favorite, favorite memes is, you know, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And mm -hmm. I love that. I think it was That's Tony Robbins, you know, initially said, there is no failure. It's only feedback, just feedback. You know, and it can be hard to remember when you're going, when you're in the throes of failure or adversity or some challenge. Um, and so much easier to remember, of course, when you come out of it. Um, but the challenge and opportunity is to try to remember it earlier and earlier in that process so that you just keep going. Well, Rob, I, I think we could sit on here and talk for days. Um, it's <laughs> days. Um, and I really, really appreciate the conversation and the time. And, and let me ask you this in closing, um, where can people get a hold of you if they would like to find out more? Yes. Um, and, and by the way, brother, I appreciate this so much. You have no idea. I live for these conversations. I'm convinced that a large reason I was so unhappy and depressed and suicidal for so long was because I couldn't have or didn't have these conversations or a person like you to connect with. So thank you for that, man, for doing that for all of us. Absolutely. And by the way, this is just the beginning of a, a friendship to me. So facts, facts, facts. Um, so yeah, folks can find me at my website at coachrobmack.com. You can also find me on most all social media platforms, most consistently Instagram at robmackofficial. And you can find both my first book, Happiness from the Inside Out, and my latest release, Love from the Inside Out, everywhere great books are sold, including Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. Awesome. Thank you so much. And just in closing, anything that I didn't ask you that I should have? Nah. I think we're good. I got your contact info. So now I know where to find you. <laughs> yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. And I, again, an amazing conversation. So thank you so much. My pleasure. And that is it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. Please remember to like, rate, review, and share if you liked it. If you didn't like it, you don't have to do a damn thing. Thanks so much. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com.